I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Nehemiah 10. This is also found on your worship guide on pages 11 and 12. And if you are able, I invite you to stand at this time for the reading of God's word. As you do so, I remind you of Peter's words to Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, to whom else shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Nehemiah chapter 10. On the seals are the names of Nehemiah the governor, the son of Hakaliah, Zedekiah, Sariah, Azariah, Jeremiah, Pashur, Amariah, Melchijah, Hatush, Shebaniah, Maluk, Harim, Meramoth, Obadiah, Daniel, Ginathon, Baruch, Meshulam, Abijah, Mijamin, Maaziah, Bilgai, Shemaiah. These are the priests. And the Levites, Jeshua, the son of Azaniah, Binui of the sons of Henadad, Cadmiel, and their brothers, Shebaniah, Hodiah, Kelita, Peliah, Hanan, Micah, Rehob, Hashabiah, Zakur, Sherebiah, Shebaniah, Hodiah, Bani, Beninu, the chiefs of the people, Parosh, Pahath Moab, Elam, Zatu, Bani, Buni, Azgad, Bebai, Adonijah, Bigvi, Aden, Atur, Hezekiah, Azur, Hodiah, Hashum, Bezai, Harif, Anathoth, Nebai, Magpiash, Meshulam, Hezir, Meshezebel, Zadok, Jadua, Pelatiah, Hanan, Anaya, Hoshea, Hananiah, Hashub, Halohesh, Pilha, Shobek, Rehum, Hashabna, Maaseya, Ahaya, Hanan, Anan, Maluk, Haram, Baana. The rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding, join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord our God and his rules and his statutes, We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. And if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. And we will forego the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. We also take on ourselves the obligation to give yearly a third part of a shekel for the service of the house of our God, for the showbread, the regular grain offering, the regular burnt offering, the Sabbaths, the new moons, the appointed feasts, the holy things, and the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel and for all the work of the house of our God. We, the priests, the Levites, and the people, have likewise cast lots for the wood offering to bring it into the house of our God according to our fathers' houses at times appointed year by year to burn on the altar of the Lord our God as it is written in the law. 
we obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all fruit of every tree year by year to the house of the Lord. Also to bring to the house of our God, to the priests who minister in the house of our God, the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle, as it is written in the law, and the firstborn of our herds and of our flocks, and to bring the first of our dough and our contributions, the fruit of every tree, the wine and the oil, to the priests, to the chambers of the house of our God, and to bring to the Levites the tithes from our ground. For it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all our towns where we labor. And the priest, the son of Aaron, shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive the tithes. And the Levites shall bring up the tithe of the tithes to the house of our God, to the chambers of the storehouse. For the people of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of grain, wine, and oil to the chambers where the vessels of the sanctuary are, as well as the priests who minister, and the gatekeepers, and the singers. We will not neglect the house of our God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Colin. I did pick that passage just to play a cruel joke on whoever had to read the scripture. I do think it's funny, Colin could read all those names in the first 28 verses, but he wouldn't dare attempt to try to pronounce the name of the church I pastor at. Andy pastors at a church in West Virginia. Uh, The church is called Canal Salines Presbyterian Church, and if I didn't tell you that, you would have never guessed how to say the name. They say things a little differently in West Virginia. We have the Canaan Valley, about two hours north of us, except I didn't know the proper way to pronounce the Canaan Valley is to pronounce it the Canaan Valley. The town of Philippi is also near the Canaan Valley in West Virginia, except there it's pronounced Philippi. And uh, there is a town called Hurricane, except it's Hurricane. So... uh, I might have read those names when I preached through Nehemiah 10 a little differently with a little bit of a West Virginia slant to them. But thank you, Colin, for reading that. Um, And be glad I didn't pick Nehemiah chapter 7. So, this past spring we did preach through the book of Nehemiah at our church in West Virginia. Two reasons why I wanted to do that. Uh, The first reason is, of course, because uh, like all the books of the sacred scriptures, There is an amazing display of the faithfulness, the covenant faithfulness of our holy God that he found in the book of Nehemiah. Uh, The covenant faithfulness that God has to his unfaithful bride is quite striking in that book. Uh, That's the first reason I wanted to preach on it. But the other reason I wanted to preach through Nehemiah this past spring with our folks back in West Virginia is because the book really deals with the theme of spiritual restoration or spiritual renewal. Sometimes, I I use this word cautiously, sometimes we might call this revival. That word is a little bit loaded. Now, where I live and minister, the word revival there drums up images of tent meetings, altar calls, what they call in Appalachia, old-time religion. Around these parts where I spent most of my life, the word revival often drums up imagery of charismatic or Pentecostal churches, or if you are a student of church history, you might associate the word revival with the first, second great awakening, for better or for worse. Um, 
And so because of how loaded that word is, I oftentimes will use the phrase spiritual renewal. Uh, But I do think that revival is what is taking place in the book of Nehemiah. And this book deals with this theme of spiritual renewal, restoration, revival quite extensively. Now, just so you're up to speed a little bit, when I preached this, my people had the benefit of hearing 12 weeks or so in the book of Nehemiah up until this point. You are kind of jumping in. Uh, towards the end of the book of Nehemiah. So I do need to give you a little bit of historical context. Nehemiah was written, or at least it covers a period in Israel's life where they were in exile. They were occupied by the Persian Empire. If you know your Old Testament history, you know that because of Israel's unfaithfulness, and it's interesting if you read the prophets, that unfaithfulness is primarily displayed through their neglect of the Sabbath, Because of Israel's covenant unfaithfulness, uh, the Lord used the Assyrian Empire to conquer the northern kingdom of Israel and carry them off into exile. As the ages went on, Babylon, of course, rose up, conquered the Assyrians, and then the Babylonian Empire marched upon the southern kingdom of Judah, surrounded the city of Jerusalem, and destroyed it. It carried away several of Jerusalem's what you might call high-profile citizens, into exile back to the Babylonian uh, capital city. Uh, After this, throughout time, the Persian Empire rises up. They conquer Babylon, and now the Jews are occupied and taken into exile by Persia. But Persia, under Cyrus the Great, was a little bit of a different beast than the beast of Babylon. And Cyrus the Great issues a decree, many of you probably know this, a decree which allowed the Jews to return to the Holy Land where they began to rebuild. And there were three waves of these returning exiles. Uh, You can read of the first two waves in the book of Ezra. Uh, They took place about 90 years prior to Nehemiah's day. Zerubbabel led the first wave back to the Holy City, and he oversaw the rebuilding of the the temple. The second wave happened maybe about 20 years prior to Nehemiah. We're not exactly sure the exact dating, but maybe about 20 years prior to the events of Nehemiah. The second wave went back to the holy city. That was led by the scribe, by the priest Ezra. And Ezra went back to try to revive Israel's religious life. He was met with mixed results. Nehemiah leads a third wave of exiles back to the holy city. Now, Nehemiah was born and raised in Persia. He had never seen, never been to the promised land, never seen the city of Jerusalem. But in the beginning of his book, he receives a report from his brother. He asks, how are things going in Jerusalem? And things are not going so well. Nehemiah is cut to the heart about the condition of the holy city of God. And so, Uh, he goes before the king, King Artaxerxes in his day. He was actually the cupbearer to the king, a high position of honor. He goes before the king. He asks to be allowed to return to the holy city to oversee the rebuilding of the defensive wall around the city of Jerusalem. And miraculously, and it really is miraculous, King Artaxerxes grants Nehemiah's request. He appoints him as governor over the region of Judea, 
He sends him with a military escort. He provides ample supplies for the rebuilding effort. He gives him letters of authenticity so that the governors in the surrounding regions know that Nehemiah comes with the king's authority. He returns to Jerusalem, and in a matter of months, he manages to oversee the rebuilding of walls that have been destroyed for nearly 140 years. And so that's what the first half of the book of Nehemiah is all about. It focuses on rebuilding these defensive walls of Jerusalem. Chapter 10, our text this morning, comes in the second half of the book. And in the second half of the book, Nehemiah's focus is in a different place. If the first half of the book focused on the physical rebuilding of the city, the second half of Nehemiah focuses on the spiritual rebuilding. Remember, beloved, Jerusalem was not just the capital of any old nation state on earth. Jerusalem, the holy city, was supposed to be the religious capital, the center of Israel's religious and spiritual life. And so Nehemiah is not just concerned with the physical welfare of the city. He's concerned with the spiritual condition of the people who live in that city. And so this spiritual rebuilding begins when Nehemiah in chapter 7 takes a census of the people who have returned from exile. And out of that census, what Nehemiah does then is he takes a few of those people and he begins to repopulate the city of Jerusalem. And from there, you can read then how the Jews all gathered together in the public square of Jerusalem and they stood. This is amazing. You can read about this. Chapter 7, 8, 9 of the book of Nehemiah, they stand for more than six hours to listen to the word of God read and preached to them by Ezra and the Levites. And that event, that gathered worship service, which took place for six hours of reading and preaching the law, that event, beloved, I think is what we could call the beginning of this spiritual renewal or this revival amongst the Israelites in Nehemiah's day. Like all real movements of the Holy Spirit of God, beloved, this revival began with the Word of God. The Word of God, the reading, the preaching of the Scriptures, that has always been the means through which true spiritual renewal comes to God's people. And you can read as the Jews begin to hear the Word read and preached to them, They begin to recommit themselves to the sacred scriptures. The Holy Spirit does a work in and through the people of Jerusalem. As they recommit themselves to the word of God, that produces a response to the word. And that response is one of repentance. The Jews gather. They hear the word of God read and preached. They go out from there, they begin to keep certain feasts that they realize they neglected for generations, and then they gather once again for a second time in the holy city of Jerusalem. This time they are dressed in their Sunday best of sackcloth and ashes, and they humble themselves before the Lord, and they begin to confess their sins together. They repent of both their individual sins and the sins of their nation, the sins of their forefathers. And that too was a great reminder, beloved, that repentance is an essential element of true spiritual renewal. The reading, the preaching of the word should produce in us 
an acute awareness of the reality that, yes, we have sinned against our holy God. And we need to turn away from our sins and turn back to the mercy of our God that is found in Jesus Christ. If any spiritual movement would ever dare to call itself a revival and repentance is missing from that movement, rest assured that is no true revival. That is not a work of the Spirit of God. This is what the Spirit produced in the Jews in Jerusalem in Nehemiah's day. The Word of God... The Spirit, working through the reading and the preaching of the Word, produced repentance. And that really brings us to our text this morning. This recommitment to the Word, which then produced repentance, now leads to the people of Israel wanting to live a life of obedience. It leads to the people of Israel re-covenanting themselves to the Lord. Repentance produces a renewed desire to live obedient lives to the Lord. And so they recovenant themselves to their God. That's what's happening in chapter 10 of the book of Nehemiah. The people of Israel, now having been brought back to the promised land, having the temple rebuilt, having the city refortified, they are ready now to renew their own vows to the God who made them and who saved them and who was with them, and who preserved them, even in their exile. Chapter 9, if you have your Bibles, you can look back at the last verse of chapter 9. Chapter 9 of Nehemiah ends, verse 38, and the people stating, because of all of this, we make a firm covenant in writing. That's how chapter 9 of Nehemiah ends. And that's what our passage is today. Our passage today is this firm covenant covenant in writing that the people are making to their God. Now we do need to understand this is not a new covenant that the people are making here. If you look at verse 29 of our text today, you see that the people are entering into a curse and an oath, a covenant, to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord our Lord and his rules and statutes. So this, again, this is a re-covenanting, a recommitment of the people of God to the covenant that the Lord himself made with Israel at Mount Sinai when he gave the law to the people. And so as part of this re-covenanting service, there are two main areas of focus that I want us to consider today. First, we will look briefly at the signers of this covenant found in verses 1 through 29. The signers of the covenant. That will be our first point. The second point will be found in verses 30 through the end of the passage. Uh, And here we will consider the commitments that the people make in this covenant. So we have the signers and the commitments. Before we look at those two areas, we have to understand this. What Israel is doing In this text. And this is so important because if we forget this, we will end up with a strong pull towards legalism. What Israel is doing here, beloved, is not driven by a desire to earn merit with their God. Yes, they are recommitting themselves to the law of God, which would have included the Ten Commandments and the Book of the Covenant, all those laws given in books like Leviticus. 
laws which dealt with Israel's civil and ceremonial lives. But we must know and remember this great truth. The law was not given to Israel so that they could earn or merit salvation. Salvation in the Old Testament was not earned by their obedience. Saints in the Old, this is why the Lord gave them sacrifices to deal with their sin. Salvation in the Old Testament was not earned or merited. Saints in the Old Testament were never saved and, uh, by, by adhering to the law. They were saved in the exact, the exact same way that you and I are saved today. By God's grace alone, through faith alone, in the Messiah, in the promised Messiah, who we now know is Jesus Christ. That was always true. When the Lord gave the law... To Israel in Exodus chapter 20, what did he say? Did he say, if you want to be saved, you shall have no other gods before me? No, he said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. You shall have no other gods before me. In other words, I am the one who has delivered you already. Now in light of that deliverance, here's how I want you to live. Obedience to the law was, it is about how to live in light of what God has already done for us. We cannot forget that truth. If we forget it, as I said, we will slip into a terrible form of legalism and works-based righteousness. And that is not a gospel uh, that I want to preach this morning. So here we are, our text today. The people of Jerusalem, it's clear. They have become aware of and overwhelmingly grateful for the fact that even in their exile, an exile that happened because of their lawlessness, because of their disobedience, even in their exile, their Lord was faithful to them. He was with them even by the brooks in Babylon. He preserved them, he held them fast, and now he has faithfully brought them back to the land of promise. And so out of an outpouring of love to their God, who is a God of steadfast love. Out of a desire to live for his glory, they are ready to recovenant themselves to the Lord. And so, let's look first, briefly, at our first point, the signers of this covenant. And notice this covenant, it is both formal and public. Verse, uh, when chapter 9, verse 38 says, the people... Uh, state that they are ready to make a firm covenant in writing. The language there in Hebrew is, we are cutting a firmness. In other words, this is a public declaration of their commitment. The Israelites knew that true, genuine repentance means more than just saying to God, oh, sorry, I sinned. That's not repentance. Repentance includes a turning away from sin and turning towards God. And that's what this covenant, this re-covenant, is all about. The people are giving a firm, public declaration of their commitment to turn away from their sin, the sins of their forefathers, and turn back to the Lord. And so, verses 1 through 29, the long list of names, we love to read them out loud. It is God's word. It is just as inerrant, just as inspired as any other passage of the scriptures, and Beloved, it is amazing. We read those lists of names. These are people that history would have long forgotten. But in the book, the record keeping of the sovereign God, he has chosen to preserve them in his holy word. For us, even here today, 
to read and reflect upon. Verses 1 through 29. The thing I want us to see is how the people who signed this covenant, they are people from every level of Jewish society. First, it's signed by the city officials. Nehemiah himself signs this covenant. Zedekiah, who is mostly some sort of deputy governor, signs this covenant. Following the city officials, you have a list of 21 priests, the religious leaders of Israel. Now, some of the names listed are names of individual priests. Some of the names listed are of priestly households or priestly families. But the priests sign. And then the the Levites, 17 Levitical names are listed for us. And again, some are family names, some are individuals. What is this showing us, though? It's showing us that we have the civil leaders of Jerusalem and we have the religious leaders of Jerusalem signing this covenant. And then after this, it's followed by a list of 44 lay people, the chiefs of the people, the noble people of Jerusalem, along with, as Nehemiah notes for us, the rest of the people, which included Servants in the temple, along with all of those who had knowledge and understanding, including the children. They all signed this formal uh, re-covenanting document. Beloved, as I said before, this is important for us to understand. Because I think the book of Nehemiah, it puts many hard questions before us. One of the questions that we're faced with as we read books like Nehemiah is this. Do you desire spiritual renewal? Do you desire revival in your church? Now, I hope the answer to that is yes. Now, some of you might think, well, proclamation is a pretty healthy church, spiritually speaking. So why do we even need to talk about spiritual renewal? And on the one hand, I I would tend to sort of agree on the one hand, because I do believe that this is a fairly healthy church. I've done my best over the last four years of being away from you all, keeping up with the goings-on in this church. And whether you see it or not, we see it coming back here to visit. There is a spiritual maturity amongst you that, believe me, is lacking in many, many churches. Sadly, even in our own Presbyterian and Reformed tradition. But beloved, even the healthiest churches on earth must be pursuing at all times fidelity and spiritual renewal. All of us are prone to wander. All of us, our love can grow cold. Our zeal for Christ, our zeal for the word, our zeal to know Jesus and to make Jesus known, it can dwindle over time. And I really hope and pray that no one here dares to think, man, we don't, you know, we don't need spiritual renewal. We're doing just fine. So if you desire spiritual renewal for yourselves and for your church, beloved, understand something. All of you, from the pastor, the elders, the deacons, to the lay people, even your children, you must all be dedicated to pursuing it. You must all be dedicated to the things that the Jerusalemites were dedicating themselves to here in Nehemiah 10. And the previous chapters, by the way, you must be dedicated to the word of God. You must be dedicated to living lives of repentance, dedicated to walking in obedience to the Lord, our Lord. Spiritual renewal or or revival, it cannot be a top-down initiative. 
It will not and it cannot happen if the only people dedicated to pursuing spiritual renewal in a church are the leaders of the church. You, all of you, the people of the church must equally be dedicated to pursuing the work of the Lord, both in your lives as individuals, in your families, in your lives together as the body of Christ. You must, as a church, be firmly committed, as verse 29 says, to walking in God's law and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord our Lord and all his rules and statutes. You must all be committed, in other words, to living to and for the glory of our great God and King. That is the only way spiritual renewal will ever come to this church, to any church. And so that's the first thing to consider. Who signed this covenant? We see everyone. Everyone, all levels of Jewish society committed themselves to uh, this re-covenanting document. And it brings us then to our second point this morning, the commitments of the covenant. What were the Israelites committing themselves to here in this re-covenanting ceremony? There are three areas of commitment. The family, the Sabbath, and the temple. Family, the Sabbath, and the temple. These are the three areas of recommitment. First, the family. In particular, here we see marriage. Verse 30, the people say, we promise not to give our daughters in marriage to the peoples around us or take their daughters for our sons. In other words, we will not intermarry with non-Jews. Now understand, this is not about race or ethnicity. This is about what the Apostle Paul would call in 1 Corinthians being unequally yoked. The people are promising that as Jews, as the covenant people of God, they would not marry those who are not committed to the Lord. They would not marry those who do not worship Yahweh and Yahweh alone. This is not about racial purity. It is about spiritual purity. And really, the Old Testament records show us this. We read throughout the Old Testament, the history of Israel, you will see the issue of intermarrying led to a lot of problems for God's people. Whenever Israelites married people from what the Old Testament calls the nations, people who did not worship the Lord and Him alone, it was usually their pagan spouses who were not the ones who converted. Instead, it was the Israelites who were oftentimes led astray and ended up worshiping the false gods of their pagan spouses. King Solomon is the perfect example of that. It was a tragic turn in his life when he began to worship the gods of his many pagan wives. So single people, just as a side note, I want you to consider that when you think about who to date or who you want to marry. Do not unequally yoke yourselves to non-believers. Don't even consider it. The idea of missionary dating is, in general, a myth. Consider this. If wise King Solomon could not keep himself pure in such a situation, then I would say your chances of doing so are, are pretty slim. Also, we need to consider this. As we talk about this, and we want to remember this is about spiritual and not racial purity, Remember, we have many examples of foreigners, people who were not Jewish in the Old Testament, who were committed to worshiping the Lord. 
And they were never spoken of in a negative light. Ruth is a perfect example of that. She was not a Jew. Ruth was a Moabite. And yet she committed herself to serving the Lord. And through her bloodline, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, would one day come. And so again, this commitment in verse 30 is not about racial identity. It is about spiritual purity. And this is a good reminder. This whole idea of committing ourselves to to committing our families or having biblical families is a good reminder to us as a church, beloved, that the spiritual integrity of the church does begin with the spiritual integrity of your family. Are your households committed to serving the Lord? And parents, let let me address you directly here. And let me ask the question, who's driving the spiritual bus in your household? Husbands, fathers, are you leading? Wives, mothers, are you nurturing? Parents, are you leading your families in family worship? Are you catechizing your children? Are you praying for and with them? Are you reading the word together? Are you, as parents, protecting the sanctity of the Lord's Day for your children? This is a big deal. I can tell you there are a lot of families where children drive the spiritual bus. How many Lord's Day worship services will families miss because of the schedules of their children? How many times do people leave solid biblical churches because their children want to go somewhere else because of a certain extra biblical or non-essential program that another church may have? Parents, the responsibility is on you to raise your children, to guide your families in the ways of the Lord as you see fit. In the homes, you are the spiritual shepherds. There's a real danger, trust me, there's a real danger when the sheep begin to dictate to the shepherds what direction they should be going. The spiritual health of the church depends upon the spiritual health of the family. If you question that, by the way, go ahead and read Nehemiah chapter 13, the last chapter of the book. And see what happens when the Jews abandon this commitment to godly families. Nehemiah says it results in about half the children in Jerusalem not even knowing how to speak the Hebrew language anymore. In other words, they couldn't speak the language of God's people. And that is happening today, beloved. Many children raised in Christian homes can no longer speak, figure, uh, you know, Using an illustration here, of course, but they can't speak speak the language of God's people. They don't speak, they don't talk like Christians. And if your children cannot speak as, as, as Christians, I promise you they are not thinking as Christians. And they will not live as Christians. We must be committed to biblical households, just as the Jews in Nehemiah's day had to be committed to biblical families. The health of the church depends on it. And so that's the first commitment made. Biblical families. And secondly, we see their commitment to the Sabbath day. Verse 31. And if the people of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. And we will forego the crops on the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. Verse 31. Here their commitment was not only to the weekly Sabbath day, but also to the Sabbath year. A seventh year where they were to not do any harvesting. Now that was a provision given to them by the law of God to first allow the land to heal. To give the land a rest So there is an ecological concern there, but also it was given 
to the people of God so that they would learn to trust in the Lord to provide for what they need every seventh year. But what I think stands out about this recommitment to the Sabbath is that it was costly to the people of God to set the Sabbath day aside and keep it holy. Because it meant that weekly, as merchants would come into the city, the Israelites would not and could not do business with them on the seventh day. Now that is easier said said than done because it wasn't as if those people could just run down to the 24-hour Walmart whenever they wanted. They were dependent upon traveling merchants. And so for them to say, we are not going to do business with you on this day, that was not a small thing. It required faith on their part. It required sacrifice. It required courage. It required spiritual fortitude to say to the merchants, today is a holy day to the Lord. We will not buy or sell. That is such a contrast to our culture. It's such a contrast to, my cult, to this culture, and it leads me to ask Christian What is your commitment to the Lord's Day, to the Sabbath Day? Now, when I preach this in my own church, I could say this to them, since I'm their pastor, and I could get away with these things. I could say this to them. I see who is here and who isn't here every week. And for some of you, the commitment to the Lord's Day is one of flat-out convenience. That's the sort of thing a pastor can say to his own flock because he knows them well. That's not something generally a visiting pastor says to a church uh, who he's not with all the time. I don't know who's amongst, who's here every week and who's not or what your motives are. And it may be true, maybe, that this is the one church in the history of Christendom where every single one of you is here this morning because you are fully committed to weekly gathered worship, whether it's convenient for you or not. Maybe that's true of proclamation. I hope it is. But beloved, it is a sad state of affairs for the church in the West when Chick-fil-A is more committed to the the Sabbath than most professing Christians. It very well may, may be the case that some of you, even who are here today, some of you may be here because, quite frankly, you thought there was nothing better to do with your time. By the way, you were right about that. There is nothing better for you to be doing with your time. For some of you, the Lord's Day may have become a matter of convenience. And it's taken a back seat. Back seat to relaxation, to recreation, to school sports, to jobs which are not jobs of necessity or works of mercy. Beloved, we do need to realize all the things which we allow to stop us from coming to gathered worship on a regular basis. All the things which stop us, we allow to stop us from coming to the house of our Lord to worship our risen Savior. All the things that we will not give up for the sake of honoring the Lord on this day, those things are idols. They are false gods. And according to our actions, regardless of what we confess with our lips, judging by our fruits, many of us have put those idols above our obedience to the God who has commanded us, and yes, commanded us even in the New Testament, commanded us to, as Hebrews 10 verse 25 says, not neglect meeting together as some are prone to do. 
Are you willing, beloved, for the sake of the spiritual health of your church, for your own spiritual health, to recommit yourselves to remembering the Sabbath and keeping it holy, even if it costs you something culturally and societally? Imagine how the church would be transformed if you all made it your business and your priority every Lord's Day, every Sabbath to come, to gather together, to worship together, to serve one another, to build up your brothers and sisters in Christ. Imagine how your life would be transformed if you recommitted yourself to the Lord's Day, to gathering together with your brothers and sisters. This is the second commitment that the people of Israel had in our passage today, a recommitment to the Sabbath day. And then this leads to the third area of commitment, a recommitment to the temple, verses 32 through the end of the chapter. Now through this text, there are, this portion of the, the text rather, there are several areas touched upon. We don't have time to go into all of them this morning. But what we see the people doing here is that they are committing themselves to give both financially and of other material, uh, out of other material wealth, they were committing themselves to giving to the temple in order to support its worship and its work. In fact, as it concerns financial giving, it's interesting, if you read this passage in light of some of the tithe laws that were given in the first five books of the Old Testament, you would see that the Jews actually commit themselves to go over and above even what the law required them to give. Now again, they do that not out of legalism, not to earn merit with God, but rather as a joyful expression of their gratitude to the Lord. It was a sign that their hearts were taken captive by by the glory of God, that they desired to go over and above to give more than what was expected of them to give. But here, beloved, is what I really want us to notice. As you read these verses, you see them giving. Giving of the first fruits of their crops. You see them dedicating their firstborn children. They're giving of the firstborn of their cattle, of their herds, of their flocks, of their dough, of their wine, and of their oil. And what is all of this about? Beloved, what it is about is them giving their best to the Lord. The first fruits was about bringing their choices to the Lord. Not the blemished, not the bargain bin offerings. This was about excellence, really excellence in worship. Now I can tell you, and my wife will say the same thing, that where we live and minister just culturally, the word excellence is sort of a dirty word. It's kind of a cuss word. Our mentality... And this just goes along with living and working in an area of the country which is extremely impoverished. The mentality there there many times is good enough. We see that seep into the church life itself. And how we could serve the church and our labors for the church and the projects that we take on as a church. And how we maintain our property even in how we worship. So often the mentality can be it's good enough. Beloved, what the people here were doing is not bringing what was good enough. They were bringing their choicest, their best, their most excellent offerings to support the worship and the work of the temple. And it's a good reminder that we do not serve a God of good enough. 
We serve a God who withheld nothing from us. Not even his only begotten beloved son. This is a God who came, who lived, who died, who rose again for us and for our redemption. And will our response to that, as the blood-bought people of Jesus Christ, will our response to that be to offer up to the Lord and worship what is good enough? That cannot be our response. Our God is worthy of far more than just good enough. All the labors of our hands, all of our worship, everything that we do for the worship and the work of the church of Jesus Christ, which is the living temple, the new Jerusalem, beloved, it should be done with excellence. It should be our choices. It should never just be good enough. We need to bring the Lord our first fruits, the cream of the crop, our choicest offerings, our best offerings. We need to Bring this to our God because our Lord is worthy of nothing less. So this is what Israel dedicated themselves to. They would not neglect the house of their God. They would bring to him as an act of worship their very best. Everything they did for the temple, for the worship of God's people, for the work of ministry, everything that they gave to that and did to support it, it would be their very best. We must do the same. For our church. Beloved, as we close, I just want to ask, how do we apply all of this to the lives of the church today? Now, clearly, we've had some point of application already, right? Throughout the sermon, we've heard several areas where hopefully the Spirit is challenging all of us, including the preacher here, and our commitments of our own hearts. But did you know some traditions actually hold recovenanting services? I don't know if they still do, but the Wesleyan, uh, the, Wesleyan the, the Wesleyan Methodist tradition, there we go, that's what they are. The Wesleyan Methodist tradition used to, at least, at the beginning of every new year, hold a formal recovenanting service based very much so upon Nehemiah chapter 10. Do I think we should be doing something like that? Well, not necessarily, though I do think a case could be made that our weekly gathered worship service is, in many ways, a covenant renewal service. But I will say this, if nothing else, this portion of Nehemiah reminds us that as we think about things like spiritual renewal, revival, we should pay attention to the pattern. The word of God produces repentance. And true repentance leads to a real change in how we think, how we live as the people of God. It leads to real change in our commitments. It leads to real change in our families and how we live in society and how we view the church and how we support the church and her worship and work. And that change, beloved, is all grounded upon the reality of who we are already as the covenant people of God and what our Lord has done for us. He gave us Jesus, beloved. He gave us Jesus. We hear that so often that I think it doesn't knock us over the way it should anymore. He gave us Jesus Christ. He gave us himself. As I said before, he gave what was most precious to him. And he did it for us. For our salvation. For our redemption. So that we could be his covenant people living in his eternal kingdom. Does that not stir us up at all? Does that not put in us a desire to live for his glory? 
Does that not light a fire in our hearts to renew our commitments to him, to recovenant ourselves to him, to give all that we are and all that we have to him, to raise up before him worship and service, which is excellent, which is a pleasing aroma of praise. Does it not put in you a deep-seated desire to remember and keep his holy word in your life, in the lives of your families, and in the life of this church? I hope it does. Let's, let's pray together.